Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I want to, as you're turning there, I just want to express my gratitude for uh, the team that God has assembled here at City Point Church. I'm grateful for Derek and for Joel, who in previous weeks have brought the word on Sunday mornings and have handled the word so well and have fed us from God's word. And I'm thankful for their labor in the word. I'm thankful that the last two Sundays I was able to sit right down there and be preached to and receive from the word. And I'm just thankful for what God is doing here in and through our church and in and through the leadership of our church that God is raising up. Four weeks ago, we started a series entitled Jesus in His Own Words, and we have been looking at the seven I am statements in the book of John. And we started with, I am the bread, then I am the light, then I am the door, and last week, I am the shepherd. And so today, we come to the fifth installment here, the fifth saying of Jesus in the book of John, and he is going to say in our paragraph this morning, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 11, we'll read it in just a moment, but think about this, words matter. Words matter. As a pastor, as a communicator, oftentimes I'm looking for the right word, I'm looking for the best word to express or to articulate eternal truth from God's word. I have a pastor friend who is kind of a little bit of a walking thesaurus. Um, He's one of these guys that he's not going to use the word big, he's going to use the word gargantuan. He's not going to use the word perfect. He's going to use the word quintessential. Um, He's just always looking for the perfect word. As a matter of fact, his staff calls him out on this. I was with him this past week, and he was telling me that in between their services, oftentimes his staff will text him and make fun of some of the large words that he was using that nobody else knows in the auditorium, but he had to find, like, that perfect word that perfectly described what he was trying to communicate. And I get that. Oftentimes we're searching to explain and to bring meaning and shed light on these truths that are so rich and so meaningful in God's word. But what should a communicator do? What should a preacher do? What should someone do when words just don't seem to cut it? Words just don't seem to communicate or convey the significance of what is being portrayed. Well, like great orators and great communicators, oftentimes we'll go to metaphors. Because what is a metaphor? It's a picture. And you know the adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. He was uh, so good at doing this in his speeches that he would give and his rallies that that he would hold as one of the greatest orators of the past hundred years. And in his famous speech, I Have a Dream, he said this, using several metaphors, he said this momentous decree, speaking of freedom, came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. 
So what is he doing? He's taking a metaphor of a new day, of a, of, a, of a dawn, of a daybreak, of the sun coming up over the horizon. And with that metaphor, he's expressing his desire for what he'd like to see and, and dreams to see in our country for those who, who were enslaved for many, many years in our country. Using that metaphor to, to no pun intended, shed light on that truth. Well, Jesus is the master teacher. He is the master communicator. So what have we been seeing now for four weeks? And with our fifth installment today, we have seen Jesus using metaphors to explain eternal truth. I am the bread. I am the light. I am the door. I am the shepherd. All of these are metaphors. And we, with our understanding of that picture, of that metaphor, we can create the parallel to the eternal truth. And we, begin, we can begin to understand some things about Jesus well, that poses a problem for us this morning. Because this morning's metaphor, this morning's statement, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Anybody have any personal experience with resurrection? <laughs> like anybody been dead for a couple of days and all of a sudden, like you started to breathe again? Maybe the closest we've gotten is resuscitation or maybe a really deep nap that somebody woke us out of. One of our kids woke us up and startled us a little bit. But I mean like resurrection, like dead, cold, out, gone, and now all of a sudden you're breathing again? None of us have any personal experience with that. We don't have verbiage to understand that metaphor. So Jesus, as he often does in powerfully magnificent ways, he's going to use the metaphor while simultaneously demonstrating the metaphor. He's going to give us words, experience, and verbiage for resurrection so that we can understand in real tangible ways what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection. So to understand what he's going to do, we have to understand a little bit of the backstory. So in chapter 11 of John, John's gospel verses 1 through 16, I won't read it for us this morning, but we see a little bit of the backstory and what's going on in the life of Jesus. He has a really close friend. As a matter of fact, it's a family, a two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he is very close with this family. He loves this man, Lazarus. And something has happened where his sister comes to tell Jesus, Lazarus, my brother, Lazarus, your friend has become sick. Would you come? Would you come and heal him? Jesus had done healings of this kind before in his ministry. As a matter of fact, in the chronology of his ministry, we are nearing the end. So he had demonstrated his ability to bring health from sickness. And so Mary and Martha send to Jesus, come and see Lazarus, and would you heal him? Would you restore him to health? Well, Jesus apparently has something up his sleeve because he says this illness does not lead to death so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Well, then Jesus does something that most of us would not do if we, were, if we find ourselves under an emergency situation. He waits two more days. The town in which Jesus is residing is a two days traveling distance from where Lazarus is who is sick. He already has two days it's going to take him to get there, but then he waits two more days. Like, Jesus, what's going on here? Don't you know? Like, you got to get up and move. Like, there's something, somebody needs you here. Well, Jesus drops a little hint to his disciples. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, they don't, they don't quite get what he's talking about. and They think he's taking a good long nap, but Jesus clarifies and says, Lazarus has died. 
I'm glad that I was not there so that you might believe. That's the backstory. Now, why is that important? The backstory is important because the text that we are about to read and study this morning is taking place at a funeral. Jesus is now going to travel to where Lazarus and Martha and Mary are, but Lazarus is dead. People are grieving. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a whole crowd of people that have come from Jerusalem to see this. And so I want you to read along with me our text for today, John chapter 11, verses 17 down through verse 27. And let me give you just a little pro tip. When you are reading genres in the Bible, portions of the Bible that are narratives, which is what we're about to read, you have to look for the breadcrumbs. You have to look for the details. The writer is dropping you hints that are going to move the story forward. They're important. So everything that we're about to read is important. Verse 17, follow along. Read with me if you would. Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. There's a breadcrumb. That's important. Rabbinic tradition was that the soul of a person would hover over their body for three days until they saw that decomposition had set in, and then they would go to the afterlife. So Jesus is saying if there are any skeptics in the crowd, he's been dead, dead, dead for four days. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem. There's another breadcrumb. That's important. About two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, that's significant for two reasons. Number one, Mary, Martha, and the late Lazarus, they were a prominent family. They were well known. So people are coming to see what's going on here. But it's also important because this crowd is coming from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is Jesus' next stop. And so this crowd that is coming to witness what Jesus is about to do and to hear the teaching that he is about to teach, this is the same crowd that in about a week's time is going to be saying Hosanna and laying palm branches on the road as Jesus enters in to Jerusalem just days before his crucifixion. Pick it up in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, she runs and catches up to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, there's some ambiguity here in what he's about to say. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She missed what he was saying. Jesus doesn't even address it. Verse 25, this is our text. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's our text, but again, don't miss the scene in which that statement is made. Lazarus has died. People are grieving. A a, a crowd of people has assembled for a funeral. And Jesus says in the midst of that crowd, I am the resurrection and the life. So here's our big idea. If you're in the habit of keeping notes and writing some things down, each week I give you a big idea. It helps us to unpack and understand what's going on in this text. Here it is. Only Jesus can bring dead things back to life. Good luck trying that on your own. 
Only Jesus can bring dead things back to life, and he's about to prove it in an indisputable way. Now, every one of us, every man, every woman, every boy, every child, we are born with a spiritually debilitating universal condition called sin. And the consequence and the judgment for that sin that we are born with is death. And so we are all in a position, every single one of us, where we need resurrection. And Jesus has come to say, that's me. I am the resurrection and the life. So why do we need Jesus' resurrection? What's so significant? Why is he the one that can offer this? Well, our text is going to show us three reasons why we need Jesus' resurrection. It's going to look like this. We need Jesus' resurrection because, number one, Jesus makes an exclusive claim. Verse 25. The first half of it, look at it again with me. Here's his exclusive claim that nobody else can say. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Now we read that from our context some 2,000 years later and we see it at face value for what he's saying. But for a Jewish audience, they would have heard something far deeper and far more significant when Jesus said the words, I am Because what Jesus is claiming by making that statement is that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus is essentially saying, do you remember Moses? Do you remember your your ancestor, your, your forefather? Do you remember when he was standing at that burning bush that was burning but it wasn't consumed? That was me, Jesus is saying. Do you remember that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire that led you by day and by night? Yeah, that was me too. Do you remember that finger that etched the Ten Commandments on that stone as Moses was up in that mountain with God and the divine council of angels that were receiving, he was receiving that from them. Do you remember that finger, that embodiment of Yahweh? That was my finger. That was me. You see, Jesus is all through the Old Testament as the second person of the Godhead. The visible embodied representation of God. Jesus is saying, I am, that was me. I am the resurrection and the life, and so only God who creates and commands life can bring death back to life. And what he's offering here in this statement, it's a package deal. You see, resurrection and life, those are are not synonyms for the same thing. They are two uniquely different things that come as a package deal. Resurrection, another way to put it is you have to be alive in order to have life. So Jesus is saying, I am come to make you alive, but not just to then leave you, but to also give to you abundance and significance and a reason to live. I am come that they might have life, Jesus said in John 10, and life more abundantly. The world around us is seeking life apart from resurrection. They think that they can possess life without first being resurrected through the power of Christ. And it's sad to see and it's sad to watch, but they often think that maybe that salary package, maybe that new job, maybe that new home or that move, maybe finally getting that new car or that possession or maybe that relationship status or maybe getting rid of this relationship and getting another relationship will give me life and give me the satisfaction that I want. Or maybe if I can, if I can just somehow find significance in a bottle or in a substance, then all of my problems will be gone and I'll have the life I've always been looking for. We sing a song around here. The lyrics of that song, the first verse says, I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. 
Men's empty praise and treasures that fade were never enough. But then you came along and put me back together. There's your resurrection. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. What is the title of that song? Graves into gardens. Death into life. And it's tragic to watch as the world is often going to other things to try to find life and try to find meaning. But what is apparently even more tragic to me as a pastor is when Christians who have the resurrected Christ within them are going back to those things. Thinking that somehow now that they are resurrected and new in Christ that those other things will give them some sort of meaning. Friend, if you are chasing the world as a child of God, you will find that it comes up empty every single time. Only Christ has come to give resurrection, new life, but then also abundant life in his name. So those without Jesus are dead men walking. Dead men walking. I've never seen the hit TV show, The Walking Dead. I don't have a whole lot of space in my life for zombies right now. But the title kind of gives it away, and maybe you've seen it, maybe you've watched it, but the characters in The Walking Dead, are, they've survived a zombie apocalypse, and now basically the plot of each show is that they're trying to avoid further attacks from zombies. You know what these zombies are called in this TV show? They're called walkers. Walkers. There is a semblance of life, right? They're moving, they're walking, but we all know that they're dead, <laughs> And I, I mean no disrespect in what I'm about to say, but those who do not know Christ, listen, they are dead men and dead women who are walking. There, there may be a semblance of life. Yes, they work jobs and they have families and they shop at the same Costco as you and their kids go to school with your kids. But spiritually, we understand from scriptures that they are dead in their trespasses and their sins. And the only one who makes the exclusive claim of being resurrection and life is Jesus. And so we are called as the people of God who have been raised back to life through the power of Christ to go to them and to share that beautiful good news of the gospel. And lest we think that we are special because we've now put faith in Christ, let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, said in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you. He says, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all were once zombies, spiritually dead a semblance of life, but at the core, lost. That's who you were. That's who I was, but for the grace of God. So those apart from Christ need the resurrection that Jesus exclusively gives. We need this resurrection because Jesus makes this exclusive claim. Nobody else can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody else can say, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament. But number two, we need Jesus' resurrection because Jesus extends an unlimited invitation. Jesus extends an invitation that has no limitations. Look at it at the second half of verse 25. He says, whoever believes 
in me. That is an open-ended invitation. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet shall he live spiritually. God's invitation has no limitation. The word whoever there is not in the original language from which we get our English translation. But the word whoever, it comes from the verb right next to it, believes. Because underneath that word believes has this idea of any and every single individual person is free to believe. So that's where you get the word whoever. In other words, anybody here today, whoever will believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, though you will one day die physically, yet you will have life spiritually. And it's open-ended. You might be here thinking, well, John, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the life that I'm coming from, or you don't know the things that I have done. You don't, you don't know the destruction and the destructive things that I've done with my life and towards other people. You don't know the thoughts that I've had. You don't understand even the depression that I carry and the suicidal thoughts that run through my mind. And sometimes I just don't know if life is even worth living. You mean to tell me that Jesus would even take me? Yes, even you. And yes, even me. Whoever believes. You see, God's character is too great. His compassion is too strong. His love is too wide. His glory is too magnificent for his invitation to be limited. But I wonder this morning, as we read the second half of verse 25, who's the he? Look at it again. Whoever believes in me, though he die, who's the he? There's a bit of a double entendre here. We're studying this and making application. Well, the he is whoever believes. That seems pretty evident from the text. Whoever believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, they will be raised back to life. But what about all these people who are sitting at this funeral? I wonder if in the back of their mind, thinking, I wonder if the he maybe could be Lazarus. Though he's dead, yet shall he live. No doubt that was the desire of their heart. I wonder if it was running through their mind. Though he die. And the irony of resurrection is that you must first have death in order to have resurrection. You have to go through the pain and the loss and the hopelessness of death in order to experience the joy and the hope and the life of resurrection. And friends, that is precisely what Jesus did for us. Jesus took death so that we could enjoy resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see it in that verse there? For your sake, for my sake. Jesus died for our sake in order that we might be raised. You and I are not capable of our own resurrection. No matter how much we might try, no matter how many good things we might try to do, no matter how many times we might go to church, no matter how much spirituality we might try to tack on, no matter how many good deeds we might try to do, we are not capable of bringing life from death. But Jesus is saying this invitation is for anyone and everyone who will believe. No one is excluded from Jesus' invitation. As a kid, there's nothing more humiliating than going to school maybe in fourth or fifth grade and realizing that the popular kid has a birthday coming up and has invited everybody in the class except you. Man, you just start, you feel that, don't you? It's like, 
Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of a limited invitation. You can come, and you can come, and you can come. No, you can't come. You can come, and you can come. Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of that. That, that does not match the character of our God. As a matter of fact, God cemented his character in the Old Testament when he defined his very name. In Exodus 34, God says, the Lord, the Lord, here's another pro tip, whenever you see Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, it's God's name, Yahweh. So he is saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen, even that wonky last phrase is God's mercy and God's grace and what he's doing there. Peter paraphrases this again. This is one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible, Exodus 34, because it's the character of Yahweh. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul would tell Timothy in a personal letter that he wrote to him that it is God's will for all to be saved. So if you're here this morning thinking, I don't know that God picked me, friend, he's picked you. By faith, trust, and believe that he is the resurrection and the life. We need Jesus' resurrection because he makes an exclusive claim because Jesus extends an unlimited invitation. And number three, because Jesus offers an eternal solution. Look at verse 26. He says, and everyone who lives and believes in me, that's a summary of verse 25, shall never die. And then he asks this question to Martha. Do you believe this? Shall never die. Really? I don't know about you, but I'm reading that. I'm like, uh, Jesus, a lot of people have died since you made that statement. What are you talking about? You mean to tell me that if I just believe in you, I'm never going to have a funeral? Well, I think just like the disciples a few days earlier missed what he meant by Lazarus is sleeping, we often miss what Jesus means when he says he will never die. You see, the word death has this idea of separation. And there are two deaths that all men and women must face. The first death is a physical death when we are separated physically from our earthly body. But the second death is a spiritual one where there is the potential to be separated from God for all of eternity. And so here's what's going on here. We will all face death number one. We will all have a funeral. People will come and they will mourn and they will grieve and they will maybe even celebrate the good things about our life. That will happen for all of us, but only those who put faith in Jesus as the resurrection and the life will not experience and will not face the second death of spiritual separation from God for all of eternity. So while we will all pass through the first, only those who believe will not have to pass through the second. See, death was not a part of God's original plan. So really, more than a solution that Jesus is offering here, he's giving to us a resolution. He's resolving, he's fixing what was broken in the garden. When Adam and Eve, that first story of the first man and the first woman, made the decision to choose their way over God's way and disobey his law in that garden, sin was the ensuing consequence. 
and with it death. Death was the ensuing consequence of their sin, I should say. But that was not a part of God's original plan, so God has come through Christ now to fix and to restore what was broken through sin. Another way to say that you will never die is to say that you will have eternal life. As you're reading through your New Testament, you'll find that phrase over and over again. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 10.28, Jesus said, I give give them eternal life and they will never perish. How about John 3.16? If you grew up in church like I did, you might even have this one memorized. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. Do you see it there? He's saying the same thing in John 3.16. You will never die. You will not perish. You will not have a spiritual separation from God for all of eternal, uh, eternity. But you will have eternal life. A life that is forever with God in his presence. And then Jesus turns to Martha and he asks this question. He says, do you believe this? I love what Jesus does here. He goes from whoever believes to do you believe. He goes from general to specific. He goes from anybody and everybody in this room under the sound of my voice to you. Do you believe, Martha? It's the difference between a form letter and a personal handwritten note. When I was in fifth grade, I made the honor roll. I got straight A's. My mom was really proud. And I got in the mail because of those straight A's that I got in fifth grade. I got a letter from the president of the United States of America. You guys don't seem that impressed. I got to tell you, I was not that impressed either. What was that? It was a form letter that he just sent out to some who's who in America kind of people. You know, I got, a, I got another note on Father's Day this year. It's got some crayon on it. This note came from my four-year-old son which, by the way, he doesn't even write yet. So somebody over in City Point Kids helped him to write this. But these are the words of my four-year-old son to me. It's a little different from the words that the president wrote me in that form letter. My four-year-old son, Tyson, said, I love it when my dad tickles me. I know my dad loves me because he throws me in the swimming pool. (laughs) He doesn't know it, but sometimes that's because I'm mad at him. He said, I love my dad because he loves me. Do you know what I did not keep? I did not keep the form letter from the President of the United States. But do you know what I still have? This one. Can I just say to you that when Jesus turns to Martha and says, do you believe this? He's giving her one of these. Whoever believes, that works too and that's good and, and the general is important and And Jesus said that too, but he's interested in you. And i got to tell you, it's easy for me to stand in a room this morning, this size, with this many people in here, and just kind of make general statements like, whoever believes, and if you believe, your sin will be forgiven, and you will have an eternal home, an eternal relationship with God. But it's something entirely different for me to say, yeah, but do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? It's one thing for it to be general. It's another thing for it to be specific. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet 
responded to that question that Jesus is asking you today. Friend, there is only one correct response, and Martha gave it. Look at it in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. But as I read this, I'm struck by the reality that Jesus is not asking a woman who has not already put faith in him. Martha is already a follower of Jesus. She's been following him for three years. So essentially what he's asking to Martha is he's asking, do you still believe? Not in the sense that you can somehow lose a relationship that is gifted to you by the grace of God. No, but it is this reality that as followers of God, faith is not just the way we get in, but it's the way we get through. Belief is not just how we start, it's how we continue. And so my question for those of us who, yes, are already followers of Jesus this morning, my question for you is, do you still believe? Are you still trusting and believing that the resurrected Christ is alive and at work in you? Do you believe that because Jesus rose from the dead that that you have the power within you to say no to what is wrong and to say yes to what is right? Do you believe that now because Christ is raised from the dead that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? And church, let me ask you this morning, do we corporately and collectively believe that because Jesus is raised from the dead that we now as a church can pursue kingdom progress and push back against the darkness of hell because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? And do we believe that the resurrected Christ still has work for us to do in our city? Do we believe that? It's one thing to put faith in Christ and to hunker down until the end. It's another thing to put faith in Christ and say, all right, Jesus, let's go. Let's go. We got work to do. We got a gospel to preach. We've got people to love. We've got a kingdom to expand. There are hurting people all around us, and I still believe. And that is our call this morning as followers of Christ to still believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is at work in our lives. Let your belief affect your behavior. Well, the metaphor's not done. It's not over. We're still at a funeral. Lazarus is still dead. He's just given this metaphor, I am the resurrection. Nobody has any verbiage. Nobody has any experience to even understand what that looks like. So here he is, the master teacher. Look down at the further in this chapter, maybe across a page at John chapter 11. Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he, Jesus, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. Some scholars believe that he had to say Lazarus' name because if he didn't, every dead person would have resurrected in that moment. He had to be very careful and specific what he said. Lazarus, come out. I love this. The man who had died came out. When Jesus speaks, all of creation obeys. Lazarus, who was dead, now walks out of that grave. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He's got a life that he still has to live. He is no longer dead. You know what everybody has now? They've got a real-life experience. They've seen resurrection. Now they know what Jesus was talking about when he said, that's me. 
I am the resurrection and the life. I do that kind of thing. But there's one more passage before we conclude for today. Because while the present story and passage about Lazarus gives experience and gives a picture to understand what Jesus means by resurrection, there is an even greater example that is about seven or eight days away. See, right after this moment, Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's going to be met by the religious leaders. And there has been a threat that has been growing and brewing because of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so they are going to accuse him of crimes that he did not commit. And they are going to sentence him to a death that he did not deserve. And he's going to be bruised and beaten and whipped and flogged and spit on. And a crown of thorns is going to be placed on his head. And then he's going to be nailed to an old rugged cross and lifted high in the sky between two thieves. And he's going to die with the weight of the sins of the world upon his shoulders. But something's going to happen three days later. You see the same Mary and the same Martha from the story of Lazarus, Lazarus just about a week before. They're going to go three days after his death and three days after his burial in Luke 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they go to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, they weren't, weren't putting two and two together. Listen, Lazarus, that whole thing, that had just happened about 10 days before. But they're perplexed. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men, who, by the way, were angelic divine beings, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Though he die, yet shall he live, as Jesus foreshadowed his own resurrection. So the only thing more miraculous than Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is Jesus raising himself from the dead. And now, what is Jesus in the business of doing? Raising spiritually dead people back to life. So if you are here this morning and you've put faith in Christ, you are Lazarus. He has raised you back to life to now go and tell the story of his miraculous power. So here's that big idea. Only Jesus can bring dead things back to life. Words just don't seem to do justice to try to explain what that means. Sentences and verbs and synonyms and you know what we need is a metaphor. So that's what Jesus did. He gave us a picture to explain what he means by the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. We need this resurrection because of the exclusive claim only Jesus can say, I am. We need this resurrection because Jesus has extended this invitation to anyone and every single person who will put faith in him. And we need this resurrection because Jesus offers an eternal solution. You will never die. You will have a spiritual life with Christ for all of eternity. So as we learn to live this morning, as we do every week. I have a question for you, but I'm gonna put it in quotes because it's not my question, it's Jesus' question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Just like he asked Martha, after explaining that he was the resurrection and the life, do you believe this? And if I could come down every row and, and speak to every person and point to you individually, I would ask you individually because this is a singular question 
meant for you to ponder personally in your own life. Have you put faith in Christ alone? I'm not asking if you've darken the doors of a church. I'm not asking you if you've prayed some prayers or if you've read a little bit of Bible or if you've done some good things or, or, if, or if you are active in the community to bring good things to your neighbors. That's all good and well, but have you put faith in Christ as the one who is the resurrection and the life to be your resurrection and life? And if you have not yet done that, friend, today, right now, believe. I'm not asking you to jump through hoops. I'm not asking you to do something special. I'm not asking you to come up on the stage. I'm just asking you to trust Jesus and take him at his word, that what he said is true and it can be yours. Do you believe this? My second question, if you have put faith in Christ and you have said, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, my question for you is this, in what ways are you living as though you are still dead? You have resurrection life, and yet you are living as if there is no resurrection power. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between what you know to be true and what you believe to be true and how you are living your life. The good news is Jesus has not left us to figure out this life alone. He's given us his spirit within us. He's given us his grace to guide us, to be our schoolmaster, to teach us to lead us away from wrong and lead us towards what is right. And so if there's an area of your life where you feel like you've become a little zombie-like and that resurrection power is not influencing anymore by faith, come back to Christ, believe again, trust him at his word, and live in the power of the resurrection, the new identity that he has given to you. And then my third question, who in your circle, who in your circle needs to hear that Jesus offers resurrection life? You are Lazarus, child of God, son of God, daughter of God. You are Lazarus. You have verbiage. You have an experience that others around you may not have. You have gone from death to life, so you know better than anybody what that means. You know who I want to talk to in this story? I want to talk to Lazarus. Like, dude, what was it like? Like, what happened? Where'd you go? What did it feel like? What did you see? What did you experience? And what is it like to now be alive again? You are Lazarus. So now God has called each of us to go into this world to be a light and to be hope so that others might experience the life that is only found in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Don't try to be your own resurrection. Don't try to find your own life. Come to Jesus and let him be that for you. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for these moments that we have had in your word. Lord, I thank you for how practical your word is. Thank you for how you desire not to just teach, but to show, to give us this example, to give us this metaphor of what it means for someone who was dead to be raised back to life. Lord, if there's somebody here in this room under the sound of my voice who has not yet put faith in you, you are a real God. You are a personal God. You are a God who has come through Christ so that we might know you and have a relationship with you. You are not distant. You are not far off. You are not detached. You are not distracted. You are here and you are near. So if there is somebody in this room who has not yet put faith in Christ, I pray that they would do that today. If there's somebody here today, maybe they've put faith in you, but they've wandered, they've drifted, 
and they sense that there's that death has crept into their life may they come back again and believe afresh and anew that you alone bring bring life from what is dead and then lord help each one of us who are now the lazaruses to go into this world and to share the good news that no longer are we dead but we've been brought back to life We'll trust and believe that you will continue to do that and write those kind of stories in the lives of many, many more to come. We'll trust you for it. We'll believe you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.